The Tom Brady origin story we all know goes something like this. It's 2001. Drew Bledsoe, the Patriots All-Pro quarterback, is injured on a hit by Jets linebacker Mo Lewis. Some kid named Tom Brady replaces him. If not for that hit, no one would even know who Tom Brady was. There'd be no Pat's Dynasty, no Subway commercials making fun of how Brady doesn't eat bread, and sports anchors would never have bothered to learn his first name. Two weeks, Scott Brady is expected to start this Sunday, of course, the Pats host the Indianapolis Colts. Meanwhile, yep, the, latest the Mo Lewis hit is the hinge on which the NFL universe turns. Now, my own Patriots origin story, one that will eventually intersect with Brady's. My story also turns on a single event, even if it's not quite so epic. Mine starts with French fries. It's 1984. I'm nine and about to leave for a piano recital, something I'm not thrilled about. I'm stuffing my face full of french fries before we leave when I squirt a streak of ketchup onto my nicely pressed collared white shirt. We don't have another one, so my mom, who's kind of pissed off, rushes me to a nearby mall. And there, we see a crowd of people gathered around a really big dude sitting at a table, signing pictures for excited fans. A placard on the table reads, Andre Tippett, linebacker, New England Patriots. Mr. Tippett notices me staring at him and nods. You want one, he asks, scribbling on a photo. What's your name? Um, Gotham? Wow, he exclaims. Cool name, Pats fan? Uh, Not really, I say. I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm not a Pats fan because they suck and pretty much always have. Well, he pushes a signed picture towards me. You are now. He was right. Andre Tippett, smooth dude that he was, drew me in. Then the following season, the Pats made a magical run into the playoffs, only to be embarrassed by the Chicago Bears in Super Bowl XX. Despite that disappointment, several seasons of humiliation and a run of forgettable QBs, I somehow stayed devoted to the Pats. I truly believe that one day, all this suffering would be redeemed. And of course it was courtesy of Mo Lewis and some no-name backup QB called Tom Brady. Cool story, guys, right? But is it really the whole story? Can any one single event really change the course of careers, NFL history, and even the lives of millions of people like you and me? I'm Gotham Chopra. From Religion of Sports and ESPN+, this is... Man in the Arena, a 10-part companion podcast to the docuseries of the same name. That show is based on a series of one-on-one, deeply personal conversations I had with Tom and some of the people who influenced him along the way. But in this podcast, we're taking a different approach. We'll look at Brady through the eyes of the people whose lives he's influenced. Teammates, opponents, coaches, fans and haters, people whose dreams he's either ruined or made come true, those in the arena and those outside. That includes me, someone who went from being Tom Brady's fan to his friend. A relationship that honestly has impacted me more professionally and maybe personally too 
as almost any in my life. Over the course of this series, I'll look at what Tom has meant to football and beyond, exploring bigger questions about sports and about ourselves. And in this, our first episode, we'll re-examine the dawn of Brady's career and ask, are we really at the mercy of random chance? If I don't recklessly squirt ketchup all over my white shirt, does this podcast exist? If Mo Lewis doesn't hit Drew Bledsoe as hard or hits him on just a slightly different angle, maybe we'd be making a podcast about Bledsoe and his seven Super Bowl rings. Or, God forbid, talking about the Jets dynasty. Bill Belichick? He'd be selling cars somewhere in Connecticut. And if you want to get really existential, and I mean, fuck it, I do. Do the events chronicled in this podcast ever really happen? Yeah. Whoa. Things are going to get a little crazy. Stick around. Okay, welcome back. As we set off on this 10-episode journey together, there's something you should know about the way I think about sports. For me, sports are about far more than wins and losses, stats and sabermetrics. Sports show us something about ourselves. They help us understand the world around us. Okay, so let's take a closer look at that Mo Lewis game. It was September 23rd, 2001. The Pats were facing the rival Jets as part of the first slate of games played after a week off following the September 11th attacks. Another event that changed everything. I was watching the game at a sports bar in New York City with some of my old college buddies. Even in Foxborough, Massachusetts, reminders were everywhere. Players and coaches wore gear from the New York police and fire departments. Maybe it was the week off, or maybe people's minds were still distracted, but the game was sluggish. Watching on TV, it was hard to get a feel of what the vibe was like in New England. So we tracked down someone who was there, Herm Edwards, the coach of the Jets at the time. And he, too, remembers it as kind of a slog. It was a close game. It was not a high-scoring game at all. The Patriots were hardly a high-flying offense. They were a little bit more of a running team. They were a little bit of a running, play-action football team. And the Jets weren't exactly lighting it up either. With just about five minutes to go in the game, they were only up by a touchdown, 10-3. to That's when it happened. It was a play where uh, Bledsoe basically rolled out of the pocket. And he rolled, I want to say, to the defense's left. Bledsoe looked downfield, but there was nowhere to throw. So he takes off. And as he was running, he was trying to get out of bounds. Enter Morris Clyde Lewis, Jets linebacker, 6 foot 3, 258 pounds. He was running toward Bledsoe, uh, hit him in the side, and, and Bledsoe went down. It was a hard, hard hit. Clean, but hard. Bledsoe sort of bounced backward off Lewis and then crumpled to the ground. And obviously, you know, guy goes down and you don't, you don't really know what's going on and you, you kind of stand there and you're watching and you're not getting up right away. No one knew it then, but the hit had sheared a blood vessel in Bledsoe's chest. This was serious. He'd only play one more series before being pulled, glassy-eyed, off the field, And then... In comes Tom Brady. It was only Tom Brady's second year in the NFL. 
The year before, his statistics were, get this, one for three, passing for six yards. My buddies and I, watching in New York, had the same reaction as pretty much everyone else, even the most diehard Pats fans. Who the fuck is Tom Brady? Why isn't the other backup quarterback, veteran Damon Heward, he's been around for a while, why isn't he coming in? I can remember thinking, okay, whatever, man. Go for it, Coach Belichick. Dig your own grave with this no-name. He finishes the game, plays okay. Yeah, pretty forgettable. You know, back then, I was a total Bledsoe guy. Because if you want to talk about the QB that really legitimized the organization, it was Drew Bledsoe. He was the number one pick in the 1993 draft, and along with legendary coach Bill Parcells and owner Robert Kraft, brought the Pats out of the shadows and into the light. That trio, Kraft, Parcells, and the man with the golden arm, Drew Bledsoe, they made the Pats a legit organization. They even went to the Super Bowl in 1997, my senior year of college. I went to that game, by the way. And there, the Pats, yes, they lost to the Packers. It sucked. But with this guy, Bledsoe, we knew we'd be back. In 2001, Bledsoe had just signed a huge contract. He remained the future of the franchise. So when I heard that Bledsoe had sheared a blood vessel, I assumed, yeah, this season was over, but Drew would be back next year. And of course, that's not what happened. By the time the Tom Brady-led Patriots played the Jets again, it was December, and the Pats had a winning record. And the quarterback job was Brady's. He came into our place and ended up winning, uh, beating us there. I can remember walking off the field after he had won and, and walking up to him and congratulating him. As he walked away, Edward says he kept thinking there was something about this kid. In my mind, I said, this guy's going to be a good player. We're going to have to deal with him a lot, right? And obviously, um, that, that just came to fruition more than anyone could imagine. Is Coach Edwards being revisionist now? Probably. But I mean, we all are in some ways, considering all that's happened over the last 20-plus years. This is what we do. We tell ourselves stories to try to make sense of the reality we're living in. And for Edwards, that reality includes losing nine games to Brady and the Patriots. And by the way, he's hardly the only coach whose life and career were altered by the Brady phenomena. Nah, fuck Tom Brady. <laughs> That's Rex Ryan, who took over coaching the Jets a few years after Herm Edwards left. Oh, shit. If you can't tell, Ryan doesn't really mean that. I respect him more than anybody else, but, I mean, it really, I, I really do. But it is funny, because, man, it's just like, shit, I wanted one more crack at him. Ryan had a lot of cracks at Brady over the years, but he didn't have a lot of success. It just, uh, it's frustrating as hell, because Brady does things to win games. He doesn't do things to lose games. And I remember we, you know, we'd, we'd screw it up. We'd fumble a freaking punt. We'd throw an interception. We'd, you know, blow a coverage. We'd do something. And he always took advantage of it. And that's the thing. You don't get chances back against this guy. Brady's Pats, I mean, really, my Pats, they beat Rex Ryan's Jets nine times during the regular season. After leaving the Jets, Ryan went on to coach the Bills, also in the AFC East. And as a coach, look, I was dumb enough to stay in the same division for eight years. And I, I kind of kicked myself, you know, like, you know, what would have happened if I would have gone to some other division that, 
that never had the greatest player in the history of our sport. Over his entire career to date, Brady is 32-3 and against the Bills. 32-3. and I'm pretty sure I've watched every single one of those games and relished each of those 32 beatdowns. By the way, the other division rival, the Dolphins, they fared a little better. Brady was um, only 23-12 and 12 against them. I mean, his, his mark on the division was crazy. Like, nobody, nobody beat him. So if Tom Brady was healthy, he won the division every damn year. Once, Brian got a little taste of what it would have been like without Brady. The year that Tom was suspended for the first four games in the aftermath of Deflategate. Still, the Pats were 3-0 and and scheduled to take on the lowly Bills at home. In the week leading up to the game, Ryan remembers one of his assistants prepping him about the QB situation in New England. He goes, Rex, uh, so-and-so is going to be quarterback, Jacoby Brissett or whoever the other guy, Garoppolo or something. I said, I don't give a rat's who the quarterback is. As long as it ain't Tom Brady, we're getting ready to kick their ass. And we did. We shut them out in New England. So does he make a difference? Yeah. He makes a difference. Give me that guy and we'll see how many rings I would have had. If only, right? If only things had been different. If only Bledsoe had dodged the hit. Or Mo Lewis had, I don't know, caught the flu and couldn't play that week. I think people maybe would maybe even look at me a little differently. Uh, you know, because right now they're like, oh, he's not a good coach. Bullshit, I wasn't a good coach. A freaking great coach. But I got my ass kicked the you know, by Brady two times a year. It's a fair point. I mean, not a far-fetched one. Sort of the point of this whole series. The lives change for better or worse because of the football career of Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. But listening to these guys, I can't help but feel like there's more here than just a case of shoulda, coulda, woulda. There's got to be a better way to understand all this. And I think I know where to look. So, but this is some sort of series about Tom Brady. Is that do I understand that correctly? More after the break. Okay, we're going to get back to Brady, the Pats, and football in a minute. But first, let me tell you what is quite possibly the real explanation of how my Red Sox lost the World Series in 1986. It was Dennis Overby's fault. So, you hear me? So, all right, we're just fielding a call from Spam Risk. And, He's uh, a science writer for the New York Times. I get away with calling myself the Cosmic Affairs Correspondent because I spent a lot of time writing about the uh, the universe and black holes. And, and in addition to covering stuff like quantum mechanics for the paper of record, he's also a huge Sox fan. And I was enveloped in the tragic aura of the Red Sox. That October, he was too nervous to watch Game 6 until the late innings when he couldn't hold out any longer. He turned on the TV and saw the Sox on the cusp of victory. One strike away from winning the game. And I remember, I said it out loud, I said, I'm about to see the Red Sox win the World Series. And at that moment, it all went bad. The ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. And I was convinced that all of baseball history at that moment was hanging on me. The Sox, of course, went on to lose the series, ruin my childhood, and extend the dreaded curse of the Bambino. And what Overby is saying is that just by watching the game and speaking that out loud, 
it's possible he literally made them lose. It sounds crazy, but Overby is not just some nutso fan like the rest of us. Remember, he writes about theoretical physics for a living. His beat at the Times includes quantum mechanics. So when Overby says that he caused the Red Sox to lose in 86, he isn't being superstitious. For him, this is based on science. So what does this have to do with quantum mechanics? The, the thing about quantum mechanics is that the world turns on these tiny little things. Listening to Overby, I'm tracking back to the French fries, ketchup, and my encounter with Andre Tippett at the mall. Some quantum physicists say that every time one of these tiny things go one way or the other, say I never squirted the ketchup on the white shirt, or Overby had stayed quiet, or Bledsoe had gotten out of bounds, the universe splits and a new reality is created, existing right alongside ours. This reality is a confluence of occurrences, mine, Drew's, Moe's, Tom's, and yours. Alter anything in the sequence and the outcome could theoretically be different. This one interpretation of quantum mechanics, it's called the mini-worlds interpretation, is that every time you make a decision, the universe splits. There is this kind of philosophical question. Is there one universe or are there millions of universes? And what does it mean if every time you make a decision, you could have made the other decision and there's a whole other history that flows from that? Okay, so when I squirted ketchup on my shirt, went to the mall and met Andre Tippett, the universe split. And when Drew Bledsoe decided to slow down but not get out of bounds, the universe split. In that chain of events, as those two threads converged, we know what happened in the one we're living in. But in the other ones, where I don't squirt the ketchup, or Drew Bledsoe gets out of bounds, and there's no Mo Lewis hit, maybe no Tom Brady, at least as we know him now, in those other universes, things turn out differently. I mean, there could indeed be a world where Rex Ryan is Tom Brady's coach and has a ton of rings. There's also a world where Tom Brady was never the past quarterback. And there's also a world where I don't even give a shit about the Patriots, and this podcast, it certainly doesn't exist. But let's do a reality check here. And this is going to get us back to Brady. Just because there are infinite outcomes, not all of them are necessarily likely. Here's an analogy to help you understand this. And just go with me here. Overby says to pretend you lost some everyday item, like your sunglasses. By the way, I do this every day. Maybe they're on a shelf. Maybe they're in a pocket. You don't know where they are. Actually, according to quantum mechanics, your sunglasses have a chance, some sort of weird chance of being literally anywhere in the universe. There's a chance that your sunglasses could be on the roof or on the moon or on Tom Brady's head. But it's actually a pretty infinitesimal chance they'll be somewhere weird like that. More likely, they're going to be where you usually leave them. Usually the most probable place is where you find them. So for the Patriots in 2001, the most likely thing would be that the better quarterback would get the job, right? But we weren't guaranteed to get Tom Brady. Was he probable? Was he actually the better QB that season? Like I said, I was a Drew Bledsoe guy. And God love Tom Brady, but part of me is still a Drew Bledsoe guy. So I'm not really objective here. So to help us think through this question of who was the better QB in 2001, I found someone who is, at least theoretically, more objective. Michael Hawley, a journalist who's covered Boston sports for years. 
He thinks that saying Mo Lewis created Tom Brady isn't about the truth, but about drama, drama, baby, drama. We all love drama. It's a better story, but it's not the accurate story. And that happens a lot. Hey, why why go into all the trouble of the details when you have this ready-made drama for you? Oh, he was on the sideline. He was no good. Nobody knew anything about him. And then there was this Mo Lewis hit, and magically, Tom Brady emerges, and he just suddenly learned how to play quarterback in the National Football League. That didn't happen. For Holly, there's a lot that's wrong with this story. Let's go back to the start of the 2001 season. The Pats played the Bengals in the season opener. And Bledsoe goes out and just stinks. Bledsoe was sacked four times, maybe because the O-line was playing shitty. Early season doldrums or whatever else. And that performance was forgotten very quickly because that game was on Sunday and the following Tuesday, what we have is 9-11. So the focus changes from, oh my God, Drew Bledsoe really was not good on Sunday to what's going on in our world. And that brings us to that afternoon game against the Jets. Here's the other thing that people forget. Bledsoe wasn't good in that game. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, I've seen every game that Drew Bledsoe has played I've seen every game that Tom Brady has played. From my money, that probably was the worst game I've ever seen Drew Bledsoe play. Look, you're never going to convince me that Drew Bledsoe had lost his mojo. I'm a ride or die with this guy. But sure, Tom fucking Brady was waiting around on the sidelines. So whether or not there's a universe where Bledsoe didn't get hurt, there's probably a lot of universes where Brady sees some action. I think if the Mo Lewis hit had not happened... Maybe Tom Brady starts week three. That game was against the Colts. Maybe he starts week four, but he was going to take that job because he had one of the best preseasons that I've seen in New England. Probably completed close to 70% of his passes. The offense just really clicked under him. He had a great understanding of what he was doing. In the 2001 preseason, I would argue with you that he was the best quarterback on the roster. Is Holly being revisionist like Coach Edwards, like Coach Ryan, like all of us? I mean, probably. It's instinctive. It's the way we're wired to align our story with the one that actually played out. But here's the thing that backs up Holly. In this reality, the one with the ketchup squirt, the Mo Lewis hit, the podcast, Brady kept the job once he got it. He came in and took the team from 0-2 to 5-5. And during that run, of course... It isn't all Brady. The Pats had an awesome defense that year, including Ty Law, Lawyer Malloy, Teddy Bruschi, Willie McGinnis, Mike Vrabel, and a bunch of other tough guys. On offense, they had Troy Brown, David Patton, rest in peace, Antoine Smith, and some real dudes who came into their own on the offensive line. To me, it sort of felt like they were holding things down until Bledsoe got back. But Holly says that wasn't how Brady saw it. Brady pulls Malloy and Law aside, and he says, you know what? This is my job. Bledsoe's not getting the job back. And they started laughing. They thought he was joking. They said, look at this young guy. He's so cocky. Uh, look, at he thinks it's, it's, it's his job. But really, he wasn't joking. He knew what he was capable of. And he was right. So at 5-5, five and five, Coach Belichick tells Bledsoe, you're out. It was tough for me because I thought Bledsoe was our forever quarterback. But at that point, I was like everyone else. The Pats were winning. They were suddenly a balanced team on offense with a QB that rarely made mistakes. 
And they had a dominant D that was balling out. I mean, that shit was rolling. They didn't lose again for the rest of the year. That's it. So if we're actually going to be real about what happened back in 2001, maybe this story isn't about one tackle after all. Here's Coach Edwards again. The Mo Lewis hit is the Mo Lewis hit. I mean, that's just that's the way it is. I mean, that, we, we can't say if this would have happened. That's just, that's, that, that's fairy tale stuff. Here's a proposition. What if we stopped thinking of this as a story about what Mo Lewis did and started thinking of it as a story about what Tom Brady did? What, what the reality is, is that he got an opportunity. When it was going to come, who knows? But he got a shot. Rex Ryan agrees. Quite honestly, Tom Brady was too good to be denied. I, I think it's just a matter of time before he would have uh, taken the job over, with or without an injury. It wasn't just anyone who came in to replace Bledsoe. It was someone who knew what he wanted. Even our expert on quantum mechanics, the guy who truly believes he made the Sox lose in 86, even he feels the same way at the end of the day. We're people. We're not just uh, billiard balls bouncing around on a table, right? We're actually human beings, and we have brains and thoughts and feelings. We're not just obliviously at the mercy of chance. People talk a lot about something that was meant to happen. But when they say that, I think it's usually about some outside force pulling the strings. The universe, or that image of God in a robe and sandals and a big white beard, just sort of playing chess with our lives. I don't really buy that. In this reality, Tom Brady was meant to get the job. It was certain he was going to get it. But not because some magical force out there did it for him, and not because of a bunch of random chances and coincidences way back in 2001. Sitting on the bench that day wasn't some unknown guy who didn't know what he was doing. It was someone prepared to take that job. It was a force named Tom Brady. He was in control of his own destiny. How do I know this? because of the guy I've come to know over the years and what we've all witnessed from Tom since 2001. He always finds a way. A way to come back in the last minute. A way to keep playing and playing and playing. And not just playing, winning. Don't take my word for it. Take Tom's. When Drew got hurt, no one would have wanted that. No one would have hoped for that. But it was an opportunity for me to now go fulfill my spot on the team and, and do my job, what they asked me to do. And I did feel if I got my chance, I said to myself, if they put me on the field, they're not going to take me off the field. And they still haven't taken me off the field. What it means most to me is earning the respect of my teammates and my coaches. That me believing in myself would allow them to believe in themselves. You know, a quarterback must believe in himself. The team must rely on him when all else fails. You know, and that's what my job was. Next time, Tom Brady helped redefine what it meant to be a Boston sports fan. But why did the city embrace a guy so completely different from the blue-collar fan base? And how much do the players we think of as ours really belong to us? That's coming up on Man in the Arena. Man in the Arena is a religion of sports production in partnership with ESPN+. I'm Gotham Chopra, the host and creator. Our senior producers are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josephine Holtzman of Future Projects. 
Our story editor is Michael Garofalo. Executive producers are Amit Sankran and Adam Schlossman. Associate producer Devin Manzi. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. This episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob and for ESPN Plus, Brian Lockhart, Senior Vice President, Original Content and ESPN Films, Lindsay Ravenio, Executive Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Tori Champagne, Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Julia Lowry Henderson, Senior Editorial Producer, Riley Bloom, Production Assistant. Lastly, special thanks to Jessica Popovac, Steve Nelson, Carly Peruccio, Composer Michael Kramer, PRX, and Row Home Productions. 